0: amen amen there's only one thing that you can take with you to heaven and that's other people there's a terrible joke that i'm going to tell because i'm a big fan of terrible jokes the more i make my children groan when i tell them the more satisfying it is for me but once upon a time there was a very rich man businessman who was near death and having worked hard all of his life, he desperately wanted to be able to take some of his wealth with him to heaven. And was eventually given special permission by God. Oh, by the way, Junior Church. Just walk out. I'm not offended. Don't worry, they're just staging a walkout. This very rich man was eventually given special permission by God, to gather together a suitcase and bring only one suitcase to heaven. The businessman was overjoyed, and so he grabbed his largest suitcase and filled it with pure gold bars and placed it beside his bed, and shortly afterward, the man died and showed up at the pearly gates where he was greeted by Peter, and seeing the the suitcase, Peter said, wait, you can't bring that in here. The businessman explained that he had been granted permission by God to bring it, and Peter checked out the story, confirmed, Yes, you have permission to bring in one case, but I must check its contents first before letting it through. So Peter opened the suitcase to inspect the worldly items that the businessman found too precious to leave behind. As the lid sprang open, it revealed gold. And Peter exclaimed, You brought pavement? If you don't get that... Think about it for a little bit longer. We can't take anything with us. What's that? You're expecting more. No, that's the end of it. That's why it's terrible. How many of you, you were in physical pain at the end of that joke? Anybody in physical pain? I feel so much better. Thank you. Thank you. You really can't take anything with you but other people to heaven. And many people have loved ones, and they do not know Jesus Christ. Perhaps they're family members, like parents or children, siblings, grandparents, cousins. Maybe they're friends, longtime friends that you grew up with, co-workers, classmates, neighbors. And what if, as we talk in our sermon series on stewardship, what if our relationships are not just for us, And they're not just for those people in whom we are in the relationships. But what if the Lord has given them to us for his sake? You know people that I will never meet. And I know people that you'll never meet. You have relationships with people that that I don't have. You have the ability to speak into certain people's lives because of the pathway that you have walked that I have never walked. Shared experiences that you have. And so what if God has given us these relationships for a reason? And if so, what is that reason? And if we miss it, what are the consequences for us and for them? See, stewardship is not just about money. It can also be about our time and our effort. And today we're talking about our relationships. God gives us people in our lives, and just like God would expect us to be faithful with the money that he places into our hands, he expects us to be faithful with the relationships that he gives us. And so how can we steward our relationships in a way that honor God? Well, a handful of the disciples first met Jesus. And when that happened, they couldn't help but tell their loved ones. So let's see what we learned from them in John chapter 1. Would you turn there with me if you have your Bibles handy? In John chapter 1, we'll begin reading together in verse 40. In John chapter 1, in verse number 40, the Word of God says this. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip and saith unto him, Follow me. Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip findeth Nathanael, and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathanael saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and saith unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Let's pray. Father, open your word to us in this hour, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This is the very early ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is just now calling the disciples, who one day will become apostles, but they began as followers before they ended up as ones that Jesus sent out. And here we we see that these two men were told that one of them is Andrew. We're not told the name of the other one. Tradition says that it it very well um, could be John, but we're not told. And they had heard... Andrew had heard John the Baptist talking about Jesus. If you know the order of events, John the Baptist came telling people to prepare that God was about to do something very special. It had been very quiet from God for hundreds of years, and they were waiting for the promised Messiah. And John came and was preparing the way and declaring to people the Messiah is coming and he's going to be here soon and you all need to make ready for it. And he was out there telling people to repent of their sins and to turn towards God. And he had people that came out to hear him, and they became followers of John the Baptist. Andrew was one of those men. If you look in John 1, in verse number 29, just back a little bit. John, when he saw Jesus, said this. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man, which is preferred... Before me, for he was before me. Well, Andrew was there listening to that, as well as the other disciple. And when when he said, Hey, here's the guy we've all been waiting for, they left John the Baptist and they went and followed Jesus. And Jesus said a very similar phrase to them that they'd use later. He said, Come and see. And so they spent a whole evening talking with Jesus. The day was late, and they spent the night, and they had a chance to, to hear him, to be with him, to see him. And the next day, Andrew was thoroughly convinced that this is the one that they'd been waiting for. All the way back in creation, all the way back in the garden, God had promised that there would come a deliverer. That one day, there would be someone that would come to set people free from the power that sin had over them. And so this this promise, it was carried all throughout the Old Testament, and people were waiting for it. Andrew spends a night with Jesus, experiences it for himself, and he says, we found him. We found him. Here he is finally. And Andrew is Simon Peter's brother. This is the Peter that we're all familiar with. This is, just so you know, we don't have any real uh, need to believe that Peter's running some sort of bouncer service in heaven trying to keep people out. That's just for the sake of the joke that was told earlier. But he is going to become a very important person here before too long. He didn't start out so great, but at the very end, um, you, you see that God turned him into a mighty mighty man of God, a great man of faith. But here, everyone has to have a beginning. People think about, oh, the great apostle Peter, the great Saint Peter, and people talk about, what, how did that all begin? Because his brother found Jesus, and then his brother came and found him. Look in verse 41. He first findeth his own brother, Simon. That was the first thing. The sun rose the next day after Andrew had a chance to spend the evening, and while the dew was still out there on the grass and the sun was just coming up, Andrew goes and immediately tries to track down where his brother is, and he perhaps searches the family house or all of the familiar places that they would go, and he sees him, and he's so excited because he wants desperately his brother to meet the Messiah. He desperately wants him to meet the Messiah. Andrew had this opportunity to meet him, and now he wants his brother. And that was the first thing that he did. The first thing that he did. And saith unto him, we have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted... Christ. You say, what's with these words? The idea of the Messiah, the idea of Christ is the anointed one. In the Old Testament, kings and prophets would oftentimes be anointed. There would be oil placed upon them that they were set aside for some special service. And that became a term that was connected with God's promised King, the promised deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're saying, listen, we've finally found him. Other people had claimed to be the Messiah and nothing had come from their claims. And Andrew said, here he is. And Andrew was a person who was interested in God. You could tell that because he went to hear what John the Baptist had to say about God. He wanted to know what he said, and he was there listening to him. And that's why, eventually, he got passed on as a follower from John the Baptist to Jesus. And so then he becomes one of the twelve, and he brings Peter to him. Verse 42, and brought him to Jesus... That's such a beautiful phrase. I was just going to skip right over that. But the idea that Andrew brought Peter to Jesus. Now, he physically took Peter from wherever he found him, whether Peter was at the family home or whether Peter was out somewhere else, and he grabbed him and he said, come on, we're going. It's early in the morning, Andrew. I'm, I don't know. And he took him and he brought him physically into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I don't have the ability to do that this morning. Jesus doesn't live bodily on this earth like he did during this time period, but we can bring people to Jesus Christ. You see, what Andrew wanted was for Peter to have a relationship with Jesus. He wanted him not just to know him, but to follow him. And not just to follow him, but to become like him. That's what it meant to be a disciple in those days. And so he grabbed him and he said, come along. I want to bring you to Jesus. And you and I, we, we can't bring people physically. We don't have Jesus hidden in a room around here somewhere. And we're like, hey, do you want to go meet Jesus? But we have the spirit of God who lives inside of every believer, who is the spirit of Christ. And through introducing you to Jesus Christ spiritually, you can have just as real a relationship with him as if he was here bodily. In fact, you can have a closer relationship with him because through the Spirit of God, you always have access to him. If we had a room where Jesus was, there would be a line out the door, don't you think? But you can go to him at any moment because of the access that the Spirit of God gives us. And so he says, here, I want you to meet him. And Jesus looks over him. It says that he beheld Peter. You ever had someone look at you and they could tell they were weighing you? Not trying to guess your weight. You ever been in a carnival where they did that? What a dangerous job. Who would want that? Probably only get in trouble. He was looking at him and taking the measure of him, and he changes his name. He changes his name. He gives him a nickname. Any of you have a nickname? You don't have to tell me what it is. I'm not going to call on you. How many of you have a nickname? I lied. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to ask you to do that. I I worked in the steel mill for a few summers, and everyone had a nickname down on the railroad cruise. Everyone had a nickname. When I found out the people's real names, I was shocked. Because they talk about... And I'm like, who's that? Who's Wetzel? Right? Now you understand why Wetzel had a nickname. Any of you know a Wetzel? Right? A couple of you know Wetzels? Okay. It's not the most common. You can take that as a baby name. I won't be upset if you wanted to do that. I feel bad for your kid. But it's okay. So here, he introduces him. And Jesus says this to him in verse number 42. Jesus beheld him and said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called... Cephas, which is by interpretation, a stone. Jesus would eventually be known as the cornerstone, the bedrock, the foundation of the church, of faith in God, of God's people, and Peter was going to play a big part. He wasn't going to be quite as large as Jesus was, but he was going to play a big part, and there was something rock solid about a stone, but you wouldn't have looked at Peter and said, oh, that guy's rock solid. Not in the beginning. Peter probably would have better been described by a waffle and by a stone. Because one minute he was here, and then he was wrong. And so then he flipped on and went all the way over here. And then he was back again. He stuck his foot in his mouth all the time. He was very uh, impulsive, just said whatever was on his mind. He kind of became the spokesperson, just like the default spokesperson for the apostles. And you probably wouldn't have wanted him to speak on your behalf all the time because of the crazy stuff he might have said. But there was a change that was going to happen in Peter's life. And after his travels with Jesus, and after the crucifixion, and after the resurrection, and once he saw the risen Christ, the change in his life would make him foundational in getting the gospel out and the church going forward. This is what a disciple is. It is someone who follows someone in their behaviors and in their words. And Peter's relationship with with Jesus now begins. But there's somebody else in the story. We don't just have a brother finding his brother, but we have somebody that Jesus comes to directly. Jesus directly comes in verse 43. It says, The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip and saith unto him, Follow me. So Jesus is traveling up back into Galilee, up into the area where his ministry is going to be, where he's going to travel around from city to city and tell people about him, about the coming of the kingdom about the gospel. And he finds somebody there and his name is Philip. And he challenges Philip and he says, follow me. Now, maybe today if somebody says, hey, follow me, you'd say, okay, well, where are we going? You would expect them to take you to a location. But when Jesus challenged Philip, he said, I want you to be a follower of me. I don't want you to just follow me to a location. I don't want you to just come to some service and hear me teach. I want you to change your life. I want you to dedicate your life to follow in my footsteps, to believe after my teachings, and to become more and more like me. You see, there were teaching rabbis at this time, teachers, traveling teachers, and they would get people that would follow them. And it wasn't an uncommon thing for you to leave your family and leave your livelihood and to to go and, and follow after your teacher oftentimes as he traveled around teaching. And so he was probably, without any doubt, aware of what Jesus was asking of him. And he had to make a decision. He had to make a decision. And it was an important decision. What was Philip going to do with Jesus Christ? It says in verse 44, Philip was of Bethsaida, the the city of Andrew and, and Peter, And we we already read through the passage, so we get an idea about what Philip is going to do, but he is confronted with this idea that I'm going to either choose to follow Jesus or I'm going to choose not to. And it says that Jesus found Philip. I want you to know Jesus didn't have to search for him very hard because he already knew where he was. God does not search for us wondering where we are. He knows where we are all the time. He knows where we are all the time. And he knows where you are today. He knows what you're going through today. He knows what you're experiencing today. He knows the discouragement that you're facing. He knows why it is that you put on a smile and you got dressed up and you come to church, but on the inside, you'd really rather be somewhere else because there's, there's something going on. There's some hurt. There's some wrong, perhaps some bitterness. Whatever it is, the Lord knows, and he knew what was going on in Philip's heart, and he challenged him, and he said, follow me. Commit your life to me. This is a point of decision. You see, when, when we have our church services, we have what's called a time of invitation at the very end of it. You say, what is that? Well, that's where we invite you to act on what it is that God has spoken to you about. We don't just come here to get knowledge. We don't just come here to sing some songs and hope that they sing our favorite. We don't just come here to see our friends, though all of those things are wonderful. We come here in hopes of having an encounter with God that changes us for the better. I promise you, if you have an encounter with God, it will always change you for the better that's what we're looking for but there's a decision that has to be made i remember sitting over here as a teenager and hearing a pastor faithfully get up and bring us the word and time and time again he drew me to the place where he wanted me to to put my faith and trust in jesus christ as savior and time and time again i said no and i walked out now i didn't come up to him and say no i didn't even probably in my mind say no to jesus I just refused to make a decision. I just went about my way and lived my life however I wanted to until God got my attention, and I had no choice. I was confronted right in my face, as it were, just like Jesus was with Philip, and I had to say yes or no. I had to say yes or no. And today, you have been brought to that same place where either you will make a decision to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, either trusting him as salvation, for salvation because you've not yet trusted him for salvation, or in a decision to give your life over to him. Hold on one moment. That has made it much better. Hey, Dave. Can I have the pulpit mic instead? Thank you. There we go. Normally you've got to spit in that thing and get it to work right, but he hates it when I do that. Don't actually do that, by the way, with any of the church equipment. Thank you. Look in verse number 45, what happens? Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So you know what happens? Andrew has this encounter with Jesus Christ, spends the evening with him, and he can't wait to go and find his brother. And so he rushes out to find his brother. And then Philip has this amazing encounter with Jesus Christ where he is challenged to be one of his disciples, to follow after him, and he does it, and Philip says, yeah, I'll do that. And you know what happens the very next day? He goes and he finds his friend Nathaniel, and he says, i got to tell him. i got to tell him, you're not going to believe we found him, the one we've been waiting for, the one who was written about in the Bible, the one who was written in the Old Testament, all of these prophecies that said he would be like this, and he really is like this. And he was excited to share it. He was excited to share it. There's a pattern forming that somebody who comes to know Christ as Savior gets excited about it. And then they go and they tell other people. They go and they tell other people. We have found him. And he said, this is the one prophesied by Moses who wrote the beginning part of our Bible and the prophets. That's another area of it. And he says, this is what the Bible says. I love people that base their decisions on the Bible, by the way. I love it when people do that. You're never on any better ground than than when you're standing where God stands. You always know you're on the right side when you choose to stand on God's side. And he said, this is what the Bible says. It says that the Messiah would be like this. Jesus is like this. I've met him. I've experienced him. This is the real deal. I finally found him. I finally found him. You know, this is the idea of the authority of scripture. What is the Bible? What is, is this just a collection of old stories meant to teach us something? Is this just a book of man's thoughts and writings that he put together that maybe would make people's lives a little bit better? Or is this the word of God? If God took men and moved them by the Holy Spirit to create for us exactly the words that he wanted so that we have these inspired words, if they're truly God's words, then they are just as authoritative as God speaking. They're just as authoritative as God speaking. Have you ever had a manager at a store give you something and say, hey, I'm sorry about how service went today. I'm sorry that it was so slow. I'm sorry we didn't have it. Here, let me give you this gift card. Let me write this down for you. Next time you come in, your meal is free. Next time you come in, your your coffee is free. And have you ever had an experience? My wife is, I mean, she has all the people mess up her drink. Then she gets a free drink, the drink they messed up, and they give her a gift card. And I'm like, honey, we need, to go, we need to go to coffee more often. This is a lucrative proposal, but it seems to happen. And you could go in there and you could say, hey, I, uh, I, I get a free drink the next time you're in there. And they're going to look at you and say, why do you get a free drink? And listen, I, I get a free drink. Give it to me. Just give me, give me the free drink. And they're going to say no until you show them that paper with the manager's signature on it. And all of a sudden, that paper, that card, whatever it is, that certificate that has the manager's signature on it carries the manager's authority. He may not be there that day. It may not even be the same manager that day. But if that manager wrote it on there, it now has that manager's authority. And in the same way, the word of God, because it comes from God, was written by God, has God's authority. God created everything. It's held together by his power. He is the greatest being. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is all-powerful and all-wise, and he's everywhere at once. And yet he's greater than everything. I want you to think about that and then say, how should I respond to his word? If this is the word of God, then it has authority over my life like God has authority over my life. Meaning that it gets to decide for me what's true and false and what's right and wrong and what ought to be done and ought not to be done. This is one of the greatest battles that any Christian will ever win is when they decide to allow the Word of God to make the decisions for their life. Because, frankly, I have to tell you, I don't like everything that I read in the Bible. You say, you're the pastor. You're supposed to like everything. No, there's some stuff in there that I find particularly hard to do. But that doesn't make it wrong. It doesn't matter whether I agree with it or not. It doesn't matter whether I believe it or not. It's true because it is the Word of God. We live in a very strange time where people believe that the only things that are true are what they believe to be true. That is not real. It's not real. Your beliefs don't make that decision. You say, well, I get my truth and you get your truth. That's great until you're mixing up pharmaceuticals and someone gets to decide whatever they want to put in your pills. That's great until they decide to charge you at a restaurant. You say, wait a minute, it said on the menu that my meal was $15. Yeah, but my truth is it was 35 You see, when you try and actually live that stuff, it doesn't work. It's nonsense. It's nonsense. There is one truth, and it is in God himself and in his word. I love it when people make the Bible their authority for their lives. Philip's experience, this is the Messiah. He fulfills all the requirements. It's Jesus of Nazareth. You say, why do they call him Jesus of Nazareth? Well, they didn't use last names very often like we would use last names during this time period. They would oftentimes identify somebody by where they live and who their parents are, especially their father. And so when it talks about, even when Jesus met Simon, he said, your name is Simon Peter and you're the son of Jonah, right? As opposed to Simon Peter, the son of Bob, right? Somebody different. And so he lived in Nazareth for most of his life. He didn't begin there. Does anybody know what city that Jesus was born in? bethlehem but because of danger from people that were worried about him being the king of the jews he had to flee his family took him as a, as a wee babe and they left the country in order to find safety and then when they came back in when it was safe to come back in they settled somewhere else anybody know where they settled nazareth which is where he grew up and so he called him jesus of nazareth well nathaniel has an odd response peter just went and saw jesus but nathaniel's a little different Verse 46, Nathanael said unto him, can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? That's his response. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're saying that some guy out of Nazareth is the Messiah? Nazareth is not an important city. There was a well there. That's about all that there was. It was not an important place. It didn't have a lot of prophecy connected with it. It wasn't Jerusalem. It wasn't Hebron. It wasn't Bethlehem. It was Nazareth. It's a podunk little town. And he said, we found the Messiah, and he's out of Nazareth. And Nathaniel's skeptical. He's skeptical. He's saying, listen, can anything good, let alone the Messiah, come out of Nazareth? Right? We would say it like this. Can anything good come out of Michigan? <laughs> right? That, that's how we would say it. And we're like, we found the Messiah. He's out of Michigan. You're like, Michigan? Really? That that's that's what that's what Nathaniel's response was, and he was skeptical. He was skeptical. And I don't know if he was skeptical for spiritual reasons. I, I don't really believe that he was. He might have been like, I know the prophecies, and the prophecies say that he's supposed to come out of Bethlehem, but the way that he said it can any good thing, I think he was a little bit I think he was a little bit unbelieving and skeptical that he could be the Messiah. What's the response that Philip said unto him? Come and see. Come and see. Try him for yourself. Meet him for yourself. Come and experience him. Come and listen to his words and and see how he acts and just be in his presence. And I promise you, when you have an encounter with him, you're going to understand. You're going to believe. You know, there's people that are skeptics, and that doesn't bother me. There are people that are skeptics and that doesn't bother me because I was a skeptic. A skeptic is a person who needs some reasons, who needs some evidence, who needs some answers to their questions for them to believe. I I don't have a problem with that because if they're genuine, when you provide them reasons, they listen and they're like, okay, let's go. Let's try this. Then there's some people that no matter what you tell them, they will not believe. Nathanael at least went and and saw him. It says in verse number 47 Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. What is guile? That's that's what he he recognized, Nathanael. It's like, here's a guy who there's no guile in him. You know what? Nathanael liked the truth, he wanted the truth. There was no half-truths. He wouldn't be satisfied with something that he didn't believe was true, right? That's what guile is. Guile is when you only tell part of the truth. It's the skin of the truth stuffed with a lie. It's when you only tell the part of the truth that makes you look good, right? That's what guile is. But that wasn't Nathaniel's character. Nathaniel's character was he wanted to know for sure, and he had his questions, and he wanted his questions answered. And Jesus saw him, knew what was in his heart, and said, I know the kind of man you are. Well, it kind of caught him off guard because he didn't think that Jesus knew him. And Jesus was speaking like he knew him. Verse 48, Nathanael saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Where did we meet before? How do you know me? How do you know who I am and what I'm like? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. What is that? What is that? Well, before Philip ever left Jesus's presence to go and find Nathanael and tell him about the Messiah, Jesus knew where he was. I don't know which fig tree it was. I don't know what he was doing underneath the fig tree, but apparently Nathanael was quite convinced that no one ought to have known that he was there. Maybe he was out there thinking or praying or, or whatever he was out there doing. He didn't think anybody was around there to know him. He didn't think Jesus knew who he was. And when Jesus said, oh, before Philip even came to you, I knew what was going on. I knew right where you were. Verse 49, Nathanael answered and saith unto him, Rabbi, thou art the son of God. Thou art the king of Israel. Jesus knew some things that he ought not to have known. Not if he was just a man. In fact, that's one of the things that the Messiah was supposed to bring. Look in Isaiah 11, would you? In Isaiah 11, We read some of this prophecy 700 years before the Lord Jesus was born of what he would be like. In Isaiah 11, in verse number 1, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Verse 2, And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and and of the fear of the Lord. Nathaniel had his doubts, he was skeptical what he'd heard about. Jesus didn't totally convince him, and so he needed to have an encounter for himself. and when he did have that encounter, he was thoroughly convinced. He was thoroughly convinced that he really was who he said he was. Here was a man that though he was skeptical when he was presented with reasons and when he had an encounter with Christ, he was willing to believe. You've got another group of people that I alluded to that the Bible refers to as scorners that will not listen no matter what you tell them because they do not want to. They may play the game. They may pretend that they're, I have more questions. I have more doubts. I I need answers. I need more evidence. I need more reasons. But no matter what you would show them, that's just a smokescreen for the fact that they don't want to believe why wouldn't somebody want to believe? Well, first of all, it would mean an accepting of the truth and a denial of all that they had believed up till that point, right? They've gone so far down this path, they're like, how can I turn around now? The second thing is, if they believe that there truly is a God, then they're accountable to somebody, and they don't want to be accountable. They don't want anybody to have rules, and they don't want to be found having broken the rules and so it's a whole lot easier to say there is no one who can make any rules and therefore i haven't broken any rules and therefore i can do whatever i want that person wraps themselves up in a cocoon of their own ignorance and of their own pride because they refuse to believe do you know how i know that i did it for about 18 months because of my own pride and my own unwillingness to come to Christ, I rejected him time and time again. Why? Because I had arguments against him that no one could answer? No, if anybody had taken the time to listen to my arguments, they could have easily holes in them, poked holes in them. I just, I just didn't want to believe. I didn't want to admit I was wrong. I did not want to admit that I was a sinner. Why? Were you such a good person? Well, I thought I was, but not according to God's standard. Very different. There are many good reasons to believe in God. Many good reasons to believe in God. Let me give you three of them. You say, yeah, but you're just going to use the Bible and I don't believe the Bible's true. Let me give you three reasons that are outside of the Bible that are excellent reasons to believe in God. God is the best explanation for the existence of everything that exists. Right? How does something come out of nothing? God is the best explanation for life. Because how does life come from non-life? No, something has to happen there. And it's the best, he is the best explanation for the fine-tuning of the world that we live in. If our planet was a little bit closer to the sun, we'd all burn up. If our planet was a little bit farther away from the sun, we would all freeze to death. If two or three things were removed from an ecosystem, it would collapse. And yet they're all there, and it works. And it feeds us. Does anyone think it's suspicious that stuff that just naturally grows all over the world takes in our carbon dioxide, turns it back into air for us to breathe. Anybody find that suspicious? Like, no, you never thought about that? I mean, it's, it's wild to think about the detail. And you say, oh, that just happened all by accident. Mm-hmm. Wrap yourself tighter. Wrap yourself tighter. Insulate yourself against the truth. I was like that. I know right where you are. But one day you'll have an encounter with Jesus Christ, and you'll have to make a decision. Your eternity hangs in the balance. What do we take away from all of this? What do we take away from all of this? First of all, I want to invite you today to come and see Jesus. I don't have him in a room, like we said before, but I can introduce you to him. I was an 18-year-old young man when I trusted Christ as my Savior. I was introduced to him. I was told about him many times here in church, but I truly met him one night when I knelt down at the side of my bed back in 2001. And simply prayed and asked christ to forgive my sins and be my savior i believe that jesus god became a man without ceasing to be god and he lived a sinless life a life that i couldn't live and he fulfilled all the requirements that i didn't fulfill and he revealed god the father to us and then he died he had no sins to die of on his own he he died for our sins our sins were placed upon him and he bore them in his own body on the tree and he took that that cosmic hit for you and me you ever had somebody uh, jump so that into the way of maybe some penalties that were coming down on you, and they're like, I'll, I'll take the hit for this one. Uh, you know, sometimes that happens and they don't do it willingly. That's calling throwing somebody under the bus, right? But when somebody steps in and says, I'll pay for it, I'll do it, you can, you can put my name down on that. The Lord Jesus did that, and he was willing to step in for you and for me that we might have a way back to God. You see, our sin separates us from God in this life and in the world to come. God can't let sin into heaven. He is a holy God. He can't even look upon sin. And so our sin separates us and we go where sinners go. There was a terrible place made for the devil and his angels, those that had sinned and rebelled against God. And that's where we end up if we're in his company, if we follow in his path. Hell wasn't made for mankind. It was made for the devil and his angels. But when we sinned and we sided with the devil, You say, what is sin? Sin is when we say, don't do this bad stuff. And there's a line drawn and we do it anyway. Or God says, do this good stuff. And we refuse to do it. Can't be bothered with it. That is simply sin. We try and make it to be something bigger than it is, but it's as simple as that. And every man, woman, boy, and girl in this world has sinned and come short of the glory of God. God set a standard and we did not meet it. We did not meet it. I want you to know today that God loved us so much that even though we were the ones who did wrong and we were the ones who deserved to be punished for it, he took that punishment. That's what the Lord Jesus did. And you can have a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ today. You can't be born as a Christian. You can't be born as a Christian. Nobody's born as a Christian. You have to be born again. Your parents might be churchgoers. Your grandparents might be churchgoers. You may have a, a pastor or a preacher or a priest somewhere in your family. You may have had altar boys and all sorts of people and nuns in your family. But I want you to know, unless you have had a personal encounter with God, and today he looks upon you and he says, follow me. Like he did to Philip, he says, he said, follow me. And I want to tell you, come and see. Like Andrew told Peter, like Philip told Nathaniel, Come and see, like Jesus told those two men, come and see. You will not be disappointed. The Lord Jesus is everything that he claims to be. I want you to know that if if you're angry about what I said about you being wrapped up in your cocoon of pride and blindness, it's probably because I was right. It's probably because I was right. And I don't mean that in some unkind way. I walked that path. I know what that looks like. I was an atheist gay rights activist for a number of years before I came to Christ. And so I know what it's like to just reject religion outright without ever thinking about it. Your unwillingness to listen to any evidence... The blindness that you have to it, you have been blinded. Someone is taking advantage of you. There is an enemy who wants to keep you from the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is an enemy that would like to take your soul to a very real hell. And let me tell you, your, your pride and your own willfulness to be right is dangerous. I want you to think about the, the worst pain you've ever been in. I don't know what that is for you the worst pain you've ever been in. Maybe it took you to the hospital. Maybe you couldn't sleep because of it. Maybe it was emotional anguish. Maybe it was physical pain. I don't know what it is, but I want you to just take yourself back to that pain for a moment. Maybe you broke something or dislocated something. Maybe you were in a car accident. Go back to that pain for a moment and remember what that was like. You have to go back and remember because hopefully, unless you're in bad shape this morning, the pain has stopped. The pain will never stop. Not in hell. It's a place of torment. And when we play games as though we'll always have more time, as though we can believe anything we want to, as though there are no absolutes to the spiritual reality of this world, we put ourselves in great danger. Come and see Jesus. Secondly, tell your family about him. Tell your family about Jesus. Andrew went first thing in the morning, first thing after he spent that evening with Jesus, and he went and he found Peter. And he looked until he found him, and he grabbed him, and he brought him. And he was excited about it. Peter just needed to be brought to him to have that encounter with him. Nathaniel needed a little bit of extra coaxing. And you'll find both of those things among your family members. But I want you to know that you have been given your relationships on purpose. They're not accidental. The fact that the person who is your mother or your father or your grandmother, your grandfather, your son, daughter, grandson, granddaughter, nieces, nephews, cousins, aunts, uncles, the fact that they are your relations is not an accident. It's not a happenstance. God desires for you to share the good news of Jesus Christ with your family. I don't know what your family looks like. Maybe the majority of your family are believers in Christ, and that would be wonderful. Maybe you come from a rough family, and the only time you ever heard about God growing up was when someone was angry and they were using his name as a cuss word. Maybe you have a very religious family, but you have great concerns that they may be trusting in a religion or in a church instead of in Jesus Christ himself. By the way, being a member of this church, being baptized here, tithing, serving, none of those things will get you to heaven. None of those things will get you to heaven. Only a personal relationship with Jesus Christ meaning that you've prayed and asked him to forgive your sins and be your savior. Now, here's why we don't tell our family members, right? Because I've been there. You don't want to muddy the waters. You don't want to muddy the waters. You might be willing to tell a complete stranger about the Lord, but you don't want to muddy the waters because what if they don't like what they hear? Well, now I have to see him at Thanksgiving and it's going to be weird. Now they're going to be afraid to come over to my house. Now they're going to start talking about me behind my back. Now I'm that guy. I'm that girl. I'm the Jesus freak. I'm the person that they don't even want to to talk to. Some of you know exactly what I'm speaking of, don't you? You know exactly what I'm speaking of. And you say, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be like that. I'm going to tell you something hard. It is worth losing that relationship if it means that your family hears about Jesus Christ. Because we're not talking about a relationship that is temporary. We're talking about life, eternal life that has no end. It's worth it. I I hate that it will mean some awkward things. I've had some awkward things with some of my family members, for sure. But it's worth it. And we don't have unlimited time. You've all had it happen. There's somebody in your family and you don't don't think that they know the Lord and, and you want them to, you want them to know the joy and peace that Jesus brings to have eternal security, and then you get a phone call and they're gone. You never know. You never know. It's worth telling them. Lastly, tell your friends about Jesus. Like Philip went and spoke with Nathaniel and brought him to the Lord. These are our friends, our co-workers, our classmates, our neighbors, our acquaintances people maybe that belong to groups that we belong to, make those relationships gospel relationships. Now, I don't want you to just become friends with people so that you can bring them to church because that's a little disingenuous, right? that's, That's a little bit underhanded. I want you to take the friends that you actually have, the people that you honestly meet, and cultivate those relationships so that you can be a good witness. You can show them the love of Christ. You can be there for them. And you can invite them to come to church. You can, in, you can tell them your story of how you came to know Jesus as Savior. You can perhaps give them something to read about it. You say, my friends, they may stop calling me if I start talking about Jesus. Any of you been there? <laughs> Any of you had that ha- I had that happen in college. You know, the phone stopped ringing as much. I stopped getting less invites out to the parties because I started saying no. And they're like, why not? And I'm like, well, I'm going to church tomorrow morning. You're going to church? Yeah, I'm going to church tomorrow. Or they say, why don't you come out to the club with us? And I'm like, I don't want to do that to God. He's been so good to me. I, I can't treat him like that. But when you do that, no one's going to ask you to go to the club ever again. I promise. You say, are you trying to be difficult? No, it's just my friends are worth it. And you might tell them, and they might believe and get saved, and that's wonderful. And you might tell them, and they may choose not to believe, and they may stay your friend anyway. Or you may tell them, and they may not like what they hear, and they may choose to break off that friendship. But I would rather have them know the way to God. And lose the friendship here, so that they have a chance to live forever there. It is absolutely worth it. What's more important, that they like me or that they have a home in heaven? Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, Come and see. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes for a moment? I want to thank you for your good attention. It wasn't the easiest message to take in today. But in our church, we do have a time of invitation where we invite you to act, to make a decision in your own heart about what it is that God is speaking to you about. And I don't know what that is, but I don't believe that you were brought here by accident this morning. If you're watching online or watching this archive or listening to this archive later, I don't believe it's an accident that you found your way to us this morning. I believe that God arranged these things. If you have never, if you have never trusted Christ as Savior, I'm not asking if you belong to another church. I'm not asking if you're a good employee or a good parent or a good spouse. I'm not asking if you pay your taxes and your bills on time. I'm not asking if you help the elderly cross the street or that you give to charitable causes, that you've been confirmed, christened, baptized. I'm not asking any of those things. One simple question. Do you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose from the grave? And have you asked him to forgive your sins and be your savior? That is not a Baptist thing. It's not a Catholic thing. It's not a Methodist thing. That is a Bible thing. I want you to know that he's everything he promises and more. (laughs) Come and see. Ask the Lord to forgive your sins and be your savior. Perhaps somebody came to mind this morning when I talked about your family or your friends and your burden for them. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a grandchild. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a brother or sister. Maybe it's a coworker, a longtime friend. Perhaps you've had a chance to tell them about the Lord and they will not listen. They will not listen. I want you to know that people felt that way about me for about 18 months. And as lost as I was, God broke through and he found me. Don't give up. In just a moment, as people stand and and pray, perhaps you want to bring that person's name up to this place of prayer here in the front and say, Lord, do something. Save them. Maybe you have people that you've never spoken to about the Lord. You've never had a chance to talk to them or you've never made the chance to talk to them or you've had the chance and you've never gone through with it. Maybe you're afraid. I know that feeling. Maybe you're embarrassed. I know that feeling. But their eternal life is worth it. And you want to ask God to give you boldness today to do that. Perhaps God has spoken to you about something completely different. Whatever it is, I want to encourage you to say yes to the Lord. Father, we thank you for your graciousness to us. We thank you for how patient you are with us, for how many times I said no or just walked away. And yet you still called me once more. Thank you that the Lord Jesus is everything that he promised. I pray that you'd help those that are battling and struggling here today. Give them exactly what they need. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing.